At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 15, NATO, 1949-1955. So the NATO alliance has been mentioned and spoke about briefly in past episodes, but like the Marshall Plan, I felt it deserved an episode of its own. NATO, of course, played an important role in the Cold War and is still arguably the most influential alliance system in existence today. In this episode, we will be examining the origins of the alliance and its early military strategies and early political challenges. This episode will cover the period 1949 to 1955. As we progress through the series, we'll have subsequent episodes about NATO as we move chronologically through the Cold War. The NATO alliance, as we pointed out in past episodes, was a response to Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe and the Berlin blockade. The alliance was originally composed of 12 nations, the U.S., Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Portugal, Norway, Great Britain, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. One important contrast between NATO today and then was that throughout the Cold War, the alliance remained limited to operations in Europe versus today, where NATO has taken an active part in the war in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. All of these nations had their reasons for joining the alliance. For the Europeans, the treaty was a classical balance of power move to address the very real threat of the Soviet Union. For the Americans, signing the treaty was a political move and an ideological chess game with the Soviets. The move fit into the overall strategy of containment, which we spoke about in Episode 8. The Europeans effectively wanted to keep the Americans in, the Germans down, and the Russians out. The German part of this equation may seem odd, but in retrospect, it makes some sense. For France and the Low Countries were afraid that Germany might rise again as a military power as it had after its defeat in 1918, and they were determined not to have history repeat itself. With the U.S. signing a military treaty, it secured them against the immediate danger of the Soviet Union, but also the potential danger of a rearmed Germany. Italy wanted to join NATO to secure Marshall Plan funds and to legitimate its place in Europe after its recent history of fascism. The Low Countries in Norway, for their part, remembered how neutrality before World War II had failed to protect them and didn't want to live through another occupation. Despite the overwhelming military and economic strength of the United States, all the nations were equal in the alliance, in theory, of course. The alliance's decision-making process was dependent on consensus and common consent. Denmark and and Norway, for example, refused to have foreign troops or atomic weapons placed on their soil in 1949. The North Atlantic Council served as the governing body of the alliance with a representative from each nation. The council was responsible for implementing the treaty. Its work was organized by a secretary general who directed six divisions, political affairs, defense planning and and policy, defense support, infrastructure and logistics and council operations, and scientific affairs. 
NATO remained an association, and member states could leave if they wished, as France did in 1966. Individual members remained free to decide the percentage of their GDP to spend on defense and the size and composition of the forces they contributed to the alliance. However, in reality, the United States became the dominant figure behind the scenes. English quickly became the de facto language of the alliance. After 1950, the United States provided most of NATO's leadership, a substantial body of troops, weapons for the rearmament of Germany, the greater part of the naval and air forces, and the bulk of its nuclear forces. World War II had devastated Western Europe, and the Europeans were heavily dependent on American economic aid and military protection from the Soviet Union, which was now occupied Eastern Europe. This alliance also profoundly affected the United States. For the first time in its history, it would maintain a large standing army overseas, not just for years, but for decades. Larger still was the number of American families based in Europe and civilian officials who created permanent American enclaves in Europe. Thousands of Americans would marry European citizens, as well as creating deeper political and cultural attachments between Western Europe and the United States. The Americans didn't deal with NATO allies the same either. Great Britain had more of an elevated position, which often enraged the French, who were frequently not even consulted on matters. There is some truth to the, quote, special relationship between the United States and Great Britain. Both nations shared a common language and cultural heritage. Moreover, many British and American elite intermarried. Winston Churchill's mother was an American, and many American elite attended classes at Great Britain's uh, top universities, such as Cambridge, Oxford, and LSE. Uh, there were limits to this friendship, though. Britain attempted to mentor the Americans as they saw it. They liked to think of themselves as the classical Greeks and the Americans as the modern-day Romans. From the British perspective, the Americans were strong but lacked cultural refinement and were amateurs on the world stage. Many Americans weren't buying it, though. They felt tested and strong coming out of the Second World War, and the last thing they wanted to do was to take advice from the British, who had failed to stop the march of fascism in the 1930s and couldn't even manage their empire, which was falling apart at the seams, and was constantly asking them for handouts. The Americans decided who received NATO military aid and how much they received. Moreover, the American military advisor groups in Europe proved to be intrusive and large. For example, the mission in Oslo was larger than the entire Norwegian Foreign Office. The British asked the Americans to even wear civilian clothing, finding it embarrassing to have so many American military personnel in their capital. It might look as if they were occupied by a foreign power. Even more disappointing, equipment was slow in arriving and often not enough. Many European states were also displeased with the early war plan. In this plan, in the event of a war with the Soviet Union, the United States would provide strategic airstrikes with its long-range bombers into the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe with conventional and atomic weapons, destroying Soviet cities, industry, and infrastructure. Great Britain would provide the bulk of the tactical air support, which would attempt to provide air cover and attack Soviet forces. The rest of the Allies would provide the ground forces. Many of the Allies resented this as they would invariably take high casualties. The plan also called for the withdrawal of forces back to the Pyrenees, Suez, and the British Isles, believing it impossible to hold West Germany, the Low Countries, and France against a mass Soviet invasion. For obvious reasons, many of the European allies were not happy about surrendering their homelands or enduring another occupation. If war did come, some states, like France, might prefer neutralism or leaving the alliance mid-battle, depending on the circumstances, versus the prospect of another long-term occupation like in World War II. 
By 1950, however, the Americans realized their high-handed style in dealing with the Europeans and the way they were treating them was not productive, so they changed tactics and tried to be more accommodating. The biggest change was to the war plan. The Americans would now try and hold the Soviets at the Rhine River versus falling back to the English Channel in the Pyrenees. By 1952, the Americans also moved NATO's headquarters to Paris to assuage French feelings. The U.S. also introduced a limited number of ground troops into Western Europe to demonstrate American willingness to defend Europe and to take losses as well. In the mid-50s, the U.S. also changed its position on nuclear weapons in what came to be known as the Massive Retaliation Doctrine, meaning that any conventional Soviet attack in Western Europe would result in an American retaliatory nuclear strike. So, for example, if the Soviets tried to take West Berlin by force, the U.S. would respond by nuking 60 Soviet cities with another 63 nuked in the following weeks if the Soviets and the Americans didn't come to some sort of ceasefire agreement before that. However, this strategy faced a lot of criticism. For one, what about a minor, minor incidence? If shooting between guards broke out with small arms, should that necessitate the use of nuclear weapons and the deaths of hundreds of millions? What if there was an accident or a misunderstanding? Moreover, should nuclear forces be used in a limited con conflict? Even during the Korean War, when U.S. forces were losing, Truman didn't use nuclear weapons. The Europeans were also afraid of the effects of nuclear war on their territory, especially as at this point in the Cold War, it was easier for the Soviets to hit them than the U.S. Nuclear weapons also posed a strategy issue as they had never been used extensively before in a war, and both sides attempted to build plans about how to best deploy them with everything from nuclear artillery to nuclear landmines and a nuclear hand grenade, which was about the size of a, a large watermelon and was shot from a recoilless tube, uh, very similar to a mortar. Of all the major Western powers, West Germany was the most reliant on U.S. nuclear forces and housed the greatest number of American nukes. For one, politically, they couldn't hope to develop their own weapons. Second, with the development of tactical nuclear weapons, the Germans believed it provided the maximum level of deterrence to the Warsaw Pact. Finally, with the deployment of American nuclear weapons, the Germans felt that the American commitment to the defense of West Germany would be heightened with the deployment of these nuclear forces. Many in West Germany, especially the German left, were not happy with the deployment of these weapons or the danger of Germany becoming a nuclear battleground in any U.S.-Soviet clash, which could happen for reasons totally outside of Germany's interest, like when the U.S. and the Soviet Union came close to nuclear war in 1973. We will be taking a deeper look at nuclear weapons and strategy in future episodes. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or to give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. I also want to do a shout out to Preston P. for supporting the show. We appreciate the support. Christmas is around the corner, and if you're looking for a gift for a friend or loved one who is into history, I would recommend picking up the book Savage Continent by Keith Lowell. Uh, which you can purchase through the website under the Book Sources tab for Episode 10. It's a great book that gives you a lot of detail and firsthand accounts about Europe in the early post-war days after World War II, which was helpful in putting together many of the early episodes of the show. If you purchase the book through the website, it helps the podcast and doesn't cost you anything additionally. So if you want to check out our book selection or donate, the website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word, 
We greatly appreciate your support in helping to keep the show going. Now back to the show. Following the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, Bulgaria emerged as a potential jumping-off point for a Soviet invasion of southern Europe. Bulgaria's armed forces were strengthened and placed under Soviet command, while Soviet troops in Romania and Hungary were reinforced in numbers and firepower. Thus, NATO expanded in 1951 to include both Greece and Turkey. The enlargement made possible the protection of NATO's vitally important communication lines in the eastern Mediterranean. The Allies also hoped that the Balkan Front would alleviate some pressure off West Germany in the event of a war. Membership for Turkey and Greece secured their place in the Western world and extended them enormous economic benefits as a sense of security from Soviet pressure. If you recall from Episode 10, Part 3, Greece had fought a communist insurgency in the late 40s, and Turkey had come under direct Soviet threat in 1947. Real protection from future Soviet attack, however, remained problematic. NATO's plan called for the Greeks and Turks to block or at least impede the advance of Soviet forces into the eastern Mediterranean overland through Thrace or the Turkish Straits. However, NATO failed to provide the necessary number of tanks, heavy artillery, fighter bombers, and ships to seriously challenge a Warsaw Pact invasion. Turkey also faced the issue of defending a long, mountainous border with the Soviet Union with a poorly equipped army. The only tangible support in the region was the powerful U.S. 6th Fleet with its aircraft carriers. However, in the result of a war, the plan called for the fleet to be withdrawn to Malta, leaving the Greeks and Turks on their own. Simply put, NATO could possibly avenge the Turkey and Greece, but they could not defend them in case of a Soviet invasion. Greece and Turkey found another ally in Yugoslavia, though. After Tito's break with Stalin, he found himself facing the threat of Soviet invasion, like many other nations in Europe. Accordingly, Yugoslavia, Turkey, and Greece signed a treaty of friendship and collaboration in 1953 where they promised to uphold the territorial integrity of the three member states. Thus complicating Soviet plans and building further deterrence since any potential war with Yugoslavia might escalate to include the NATO alliance and any war with NATO could result in a war with Yugoslavia. Greece and Turkey, though, despite their shared interest in being members of NATO, were traditional rivals. The decision of the Greek government in 1954 to bring Cyprus to the United Nations put Greece on a collision course with Turkey, Britain, and the United States. In 1955, bloody anti-Greek riots broke out in Turkey. Greek officers serving in NATO headquarters were physically attacked by their Turkish counterparts, and the Greek embassy in Ankara was attacked and sacked. The situation in Cyprus would eventually lead to a short war between Greece and Turkey in 1974, uh, which we will be covering in a later episode. The alliance naturally suffered from several weaknesses. The first was its lack of a propaganda arm and political warfare. If you remember your von Clausewitz, war is the continuation of politics by other means. Hence, war is not about killing your enemy, but achieving your political objectives. The want of a political strategy became all the more obvious during the later 1950s and 1960s when the Soviets became increasingly able to use the peace slogans of the anti-war movement on, on their own behalf and ever more resolved to make their influence felt in the developing world. NATO also struggled with standardizing equipment. Allies used all kinds of different equipment in contrast to the Warsaw Pact. In the event of a war, this could have caused confusion, friendly fire incidences potentially, and logistical and supply issues. NATO was also beset, like most alliances, with issues such as jealousy, disputes, and burden-sharing debates, 
which still haunt the alliance to this day. One of the big debates which still arises today is that the Europeans were not pulling their weight in contrast to the Americans. However, by 1953, Great Britain and France were spending about 10% of their GDP on defense. Comparing costs were not always exact or fair either. For example, it was more expensive for the Americans to maintain an American volunteer versus Germany, a West German conscript. The Europeans combined spent more and fielded more troops in the U.S. until the Reagan presidency of the 1980s. There was also a debate around the real danger that the Soviets posed in Europe. In the early 1950s, the Soviets had a force of roughly 5 million men under arms with a half million men deployed to Eastern Europe and 10 mechanized and 10 armored divisions with an additional 100,000 troops based in European Russia, including nine airborne divisions. Uh, with an additional 400 divisions, which could be mobilized in 30 days. Soviet forces had an estimated 65,000 tanks with an additional 10,000 aircraft. The Soviets could also call upon their Warsaw Pact allies as well, who fielded a combined 800,000 troops in the 1950s with another 3,000 aircraft. In contrast, in early 1950, NATO could only mobilize six divisions. But by 1955, this number had slowly increased to 25 active divisions with 25 divisions in reserve and about 9,000 aircraft. However, these strengths were affected by the Korean War and the Indochina War. At one point, France had 517,000 troops, most of its active forces deployed in Indochina. Later, France again would be redeploy troops to Algeria to battle the insurgency there. Great Britain also engaged in colonial struggles in Malaya and Kenya, which diverted resources from NATO. There was, however, a lot of debate around the actual strength of Warsaw Pact forces as well. For starters, the data around the makeup and strength of Soviet forces was drawn from multiple sources with everything from what the Soviets published themselves to U-2 reconnaissance photos. But there were arguments to the actual strength of these divisions, such as how many men were assigned to each division, what was the battle readiness of each of these divisions, and what was the morale like. Could Polish and Hungarian troops be counted upon in a wartime situation? Would East German troops fight West German troops? Could the Soviets organize and deploy an additional 400 divisions in 30 days? It's one thing to say that you can do it. It's another to do it in real life. The other challenge was that the Warsaw Pact forces would have to cross several rivers and maneuver through large urban areas which would have been defensible positions. Moreover, NATO enjoyed the advantage of interior defensive lines, meaning they could more easily defend and resupply in the event of an attack versus the Warsaw Pact. On average, NATO troops were better equipped and trained with stronger logistical support. NATO aircraft maintained, on average, much higher sortie rates, or flight rates, than their Warsaw Pact opponents. NATO also had a decisive advantage at sea as well, with a large armada of capital ships and aircraft carriers which could be brought to bear, along with advanced amphibious capabilities developed during the Second World War. The Soviets did maintain a sizable subforce, but its surface fleet in the 1950s was no match for NATO. We will be looking at the war at sea and in future episodes as well. From archival evidence, we do know that the Warsaw Pact did plan for a strike through Western Europe and the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Nevertheless, the debate still rages today about the effectiveness of the Warsaw Pact and the danger they pose to Western Europe. Except now, historians and political scientists argue about it versus generals, defense analysts, and politicians. I will be having several future episodes examining the military forces of both sides. 
The alliance also faced several political challenges during this period. One big challenge facing NATO in its early years was the territory of Trieste. Trieste had been a part of Italy, but was claimed by Yugoslavia as well. After the war, part of Trieste was occupied by Britain and America, uh, or what became Zone A, and the other part by Yugoslavia, Zone B. Initially, the U.S., Great Britain, and France had backed Italy's claim to the region, but as the rift between Moscow and Belgrade grew, the U.S. took more of a mediating position, not wishing to offend either side. By 1953, both the Italians and Yugoslavians had not backed down from their claims. On top of that, both sides had sent troops to the border. Tito had spoken in passing that he might be willing to accept a, a solution imposed by the Western powers. So the British and Americans agreed to cede the regions held by Yugoslavia unilaterally without consulting the Italians or the French. Neither government accepted the Anglo-American Declaration, and Tito declared if Italian troops entered Trieste, Yugoslavia would consider it an act of war. Hence, Britain and the United States had almost unintentionally started a war. Eventually, in 1954, an agreement was worked out uh, whereby the vast majority of Zone A, including the city of Trieste, was given as a civil administration to Italy. Zone B was given as a civil administration to Yugoslavia, along with four small villages from Zone A. The other big issue in this period was German rearmament. If you recall, after the Second World War, Germany was divided into four regions controlled by Great Britain, the U.S., France, and the Soviet Union. However, the cost of administrating the occupied zones was significant for the Americans and British who were struggling to restart the German economy and stave off starvation. It was estimated that the United States was spending an estimated $200 million a year to maintain the occupation and another $700 million between Britain and the United States to feed West Germany. The occupation was costly in other ways as well. American troops in 1946 were contracting venereal diseases at a rate of 306 cases per 1,000 men a month, or nearly one in three American soldiers in Europe. In one extraordinary unit of 1,000 men, more than 1,200 cases were reported in one month, meaning some soldiers were hardly cured of one infection before contracting another. American troops in Europe were also getting themselves killed in car accidents at 12 times the rate as in the United States. The occupation was costing so much because Germany was failing to recover from the war because Germany had been divided into four small economic zones unable to trade with each other. Both the French and Soviets blocked any efforts by the Allies to reintegrate the German economy. They both wanted Germany to pay slash suffer for the damage it had inflicted on their nations during the war. Second, they re feared a rearmed and resurgent future Germany. In their minds, it was better to keep Germany broken and divided than united and prosperous. The British and Americans, nevertheless, decided to push ahead with the creation of a West German state, merging their zones of occupation. The French couldn't do anything really to stop the Americans. For one, the British and Americans had lost hundreds of thousands of men in both world wars to liberate France. Second, France was dependent on American aid to rebuild their nation and to retain their colony of Indochina. So despite their misgivings, they went along with the plan. The Soviets reacted bitterly and attempted to blockade Berlin to pr pressure the Allies to stop, but ultimately failed, as we outlined in Episode 11, leading to the creation of the West German state in May 1949. Initially, though, Germany had no army or military forces, as many European nations still feared a rearmed Germany, given Germany's history of military conquest. Nevertheless, the Korean War changed NATO and especially America's calculations. 
With American forces fighting in Korea, the United States feared a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, even more so, and it seemed irresponsible to not let the Germans defend themselves against the hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops massed on their borders. The West German Chancellor, Adenauer, had already begun to plan secretly the possibility of German rearmament. He wanted to join NATO because he decided that it would appease the fears of Germany's neighbors and would gain Germany trust and show willingness to cooperate. Many on the German left, though, opposed this course of action. They feared the return of the Wehrmacht and feared the danger it would pose to the young West German Republic. The German army, and before that the Prussian army, had been an authoritarian force in German politics for decades. The Americans wanted Germany to help bear some of the defense of its own country as well. Churchill proposed the creation of a European army, thus pooling European resources and eliminating the need of a German army, a concept which is still being talked about today. The Americans, although not opposed, were not excited about this plan because they feared it would create a force outside of NATO. However, the Chinese entrance into the Korean War in 19, November 1950 and the fear of the war spreading to Europe convinced France and other European nations to allow for limited German rearmament. In 1954, the new German army was renamed the Bundeswehr, as the Allies wanted a clean break with the old German military, the Wehrmacht. The new army lacked a general staff and was, in many ways, a purely defensive force. Also in 1954, the Soviet Union attempted to join NATO. A year after Stalin died in 1953 and a year before the Warsaw Pact was established in 1955, the Kremlin asked to join NATO. Molotov had hoped he could have European nations focus on the potential German threat versus the threat of the Soviet Union if the USR, USSR was in NATO. Moreover, if the Soviet Union was rejected membership, it would be a propaganda victory, showing to the world that NATO was hostile to the Soviet Union and not a purely defensive alliance, hence a perceived win-win situation. The Western powers, of course, rejected the Soviet proposal to join NATO on grounds that the USSR's membership of the organization would be incompatible with its democratic and defensive aims. Finally, the other issue to challenge NATO in this period was the creation of the Warsaw Pact in 1955. The Warsaw Pact was the Soviet answer to the growing political and military power of NATO. The Soviets also established the Warsaw Pact as a direct response to the Allied decision to rearm West Germany. I will be taking a deeper look at the history of the Warsaw Pact in, a, in subsequent episodes. In a final summation, the early NATO alliance, along with the Marshall Plan, helped to secure Western Europe from the threat of the Soviet Union and helped to rebuild a peaceful Germany while giving the rest of the Europeans reassurances that Germany wouldn't travel down the path of militarization once again with American troops stationed there. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 15. Check out our next episode on November the 15th, where we will be examining the early years of the KGB. We will be examining its origins and looking at its success in the early Cold War. What some call the KGB's golden years, assassinating Trotsky and sealing the plans for the atomic bomb and much more. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history but still want to help, give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated. And if you have a moment, fill out our server there to help us bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.